Good morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the elders here. I just want to say thank you for being here this morning. Um, thank you, Ben, for that prayer. Thank you, Andrew and the band, for leading us in worship. I love that last song we sang, All My Wealth is in the Cross. Um, it just reminds me of a parable that Jesus spoke about when he talked about the kingdom of God being like uh, a field that a man found treasure in, and he went and he sold everything that he had to buy that field, just seeing the overwhelming value that we have in Jesus and how it's greater than anything the world has to offer. So thank you guys for leading us this morning. Um, we're going to continue studying through the life of David this morning. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we didn't have a scripture reader this morning. A lot of times we have someone come up and read through the, the whole passage of scripture. Uh, we don't have one this morning because it's a long passage, and so we're just going to read through it as we study it. Um, and we want to kick things off. I want to introduce a, a phrase to you. Most of you have probably heard it before, but if you're not you know, up to date on your pop culture references, you may not have heard it. It's a phrase, mic drop. Anybody familiar with that one? Mic drop, right? Mic drop. So if you don't know what a, what a mic drop is, mic drop is essentially the, the act of intentionally dropping a microphone if you're on stage at the end of either a strong performance or a strong speech or if you make a strong argument, you might take the microphone and just drop it and walk off stage. It's essentially a way of saying, hey, we don't really need this anymore because no one's going to do a better job than I just did. Um, mic drop. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting thing. It, it was made popular, actually, it's been around since the 80s in modern culture, uh, made popular by comedians like Eddie Murphy, uh, even uh, Barack Obama, former president, had a famous mic drop on the Jimmy Fallon show, if you watched any Jimmy Fallon. Um, but I would argue that the, the original mic drop may have happened about 3,000 years ago in the passage that we're going to look at today. Now, of course, we, he didn't have an actual physical microphone, but the same concept happened, and we're going to look at that this morning, where the prophet Nathan, in the passage we read today, is about to drop the mic on David. So I want to answer first, how did we get here? Because we're going to pick up um, right where we left off essentially last week. So last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11, a familiar story for most of us, but the story of David and Bathsheba. And so I want to do a recap of that. So we've got some context for the chapter that we're in today. So David and Bathsheba, David is the, is the king of Israel at this point, and we Things start off in chapter 11 already kind of going downhill because David is supposed to be with his men at, at battle. They're at war. David's supposed to be with his men, but David instead decides that he can just sit this one out. So he stays home, sends his men to war. Well, while David's at home, he decides to go for a stroll on his rooftop. He sees a woman at his door bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. He sends for her, brings her to his house, sleeps with her. Now the problem is Bathsheba is not a single woman, nor is David a single man, by the way. Bathsheba is not a single woman. She has a husband named Uriah. Uriah is fighting in the battle where David's really supposed to be, but he's not. Now Bathsheba ends up pregnant from this one night that they spend together, and David immediately starts trying to figure out, how can I cover this up? Like, I don't want people to know about this. How can I cover it up? So he brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he brings him home from the battlefront and says, hey, how are things going at the battlefront? Um, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Why don't you just go home and spend the night at your house a couple of nights? He even tells him, go home, 
uh, wash your feet. It's, it's essentially saying that's, that's something that you would do before you get in bed. So he's basically saying, hey, go home and sleep with your wife tonight. Um, he wants to cover up her pregnancy. If he can get her to sleep with her husband, well, hey, then we can just tell everybody that this baby that Bathsheba's having is, is really just her husband's. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, Uriah is a strong man of principle. He says, I'm not going to go home and sleep with my wife and sleep in my home while all of the men that I'm fighting with are at the battlefront. So he sleeps outside. Uh, David brings him back in the next day, uh, tries again. He tries to get him drunk this time and says, maybe if I can get him drunk, he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Still doesn't, still doesn't go home to sleep with his wife. And so David uh, goes to plan B. And plan B is, uh, is pretty dark. David decides that if he can't cover this up, that he's... Don't need to use this. Is that better? Check, check, check. So, so David decides if he can't cover this up, that he's just going to get rid of Uriah. And so he, he starts this plan to have Uriah killed. He sends a message to Joab, who's commanding the armies. He says, hey, go to, the, one of the, go to battle, and when the battle is at its fiercest, send Uriah to the very front of that battle. And when, it, when, the, when the battle starts and things get heavy, pull back from Uriah and let him die. Let him be killed. And so that happens. So... After that, David goes and he calls Bathsheba to his house to be his wife. And that's where we pick up in chapter 12. And chapter 11 ends with this phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now God wasn't really anywhere to be found in chapter 11 until we get to that very last verse. It's really just a retelling of events. It's very matter of fact. Uh, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of God inserting himself into that story. It just allows David to play out his sin through that story until you get to that very last verse when suddenly you get, you get some commentary from how God felt about the issues that were happening. And so in 2 Samuel 12, we find David in the middle of the very darkest or one of the darkest seasons of his life. Now, scholars believe that between chapter 11 and chapter 12, that it's probably been about 12 months. So there's about a year's time frame that's taken place. I mean, the, the baby's already been born, like the baby's here in chapter 12. And so there's, there's been some time pass. And David has just been living this lie for the past year. So how does God respond to that? So today, we're going we're gonna to focus on and be looking at God's pursuing grace. God's grace that doesn't allow David to just sit and live in sin, but pursues David and comes after him. So there are four things that we can learn from this passage. Four things about pursuing grace. The first one is this. Pursuing grace is sent. Pursuing grace is sent. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. 
And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the, for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Right? Now that I've got a microphone, I can, I'm not going to drop it. So that's, that's the mic drop moment, right? You are the man. This chapter starts out with, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. In chapter 11, we're not going to go back and read through the whole chapter, but there's a lot of sending going on in chapter 11. If you go back and read through it, uh, you can see the word sent pretty frequently. David sent Joab to battle. David sent and inquired about Bathsheba. David sent messengers to her. David sent word to Joab. Joab sent Uriah to David. David sent a letter to, to Joab by Uriah. Quick side note, David sent a letter to Joab essentially saying, hey, we need to kill Uriah. He sent that letter by Uriah's hand. Like, that's, that's nuts to me. It's, hey, take this letter to Joab. Please don't read it. Um, it. It's about how we're conspiring to kill you. I mean, the, the depths of David's sin here uh, is just unsearchable. David sent a letter to Joab by Uriah. Joab sent and told David about the fighting. David sent and had Bathsheba brought to his house. And now the Lord sends, and he sends Nathan. As I mentioned earlier, it had been likely close to a year between chapters 11 and chapter 12, close to a year since Uriah was killed. What do you think life was like for David in that time? What do you think life was like for David? We actually have um, some fairly unique insight into David's life. Uh, of course, much of the book of Psalms is basically David's journal. And so we have some good insight into what David was feeling and thinking during that time. So if you look at Psalm 32, uh, this is a psalm written around this time frame. Psalm 32 verses 3 through 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away and threw my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God is not a passive onlooker in this story. It may seem that way, especially when you're reading chapter 11 and all these crazy things are going on. You, you want to kind of ask the question, where is God in the middle of this? Well, as we continue this story, we're kind of in part two this week. As we continue this story, we see God's response, that he is not a passive onlooker as we read this story. All of the action to this point has been David's, but it is the Lord who is now ready for action, and he starts by sending Nathan. And what we see and what we can learn from this passage is that the Lord will not simply abandon you to your sin. And when you mess up, because you will, he comes after you. And his timing is perfect, so it might be one day, it might be one year, but the Lord pursues those who are his. He doesn't abandon you to wallow in your sin. 
My oldest son, Grayson, is the one in our house who feels all the feelings. Um, He's got all of his emotions, and he feels them very strongly. The problem is he's five years old, and and he just doesn't always know how to regulate those feelings. And so I love his feelings, and I love his passion. Uh, But Sometimes he he just literally, physically, just can't control himself. Uh, He just can't regulate those emotions. And there are times when he either makes a, a poor decision and gets in trouble, or there are times when he does something that he feels either shame or guilt or embarrassment about. And oftentimes, his reaction towards that is to just go and hide. Like, he'll, he'll disappear. And he's a really good hider. Like, there's been times when we... I'm, I'm like, I really don't know where Grayson is. Like, he's somewhere in the house, I'm fairly sure... But I've looked for him, and I can't find him. Like He's a really good hider. Um, and in those moments, and, and not that Caitlin and I are ever are perfect in our parenting, but we, we have a choice to make because we can allow Grayson to just wallow in his shame. And that's what he's doing. He feels either shame or embarrassment or guilt, and so he wants to just get away from it and just be alone and just sit in it. And we could leave him there, and eventually, like, he'd get hungry or thirsty or have to use the bathroom. Like, eventually, like, he, he would get out of his hiding spot and he would come back. But we have a, another choice that we can make also. And this is the choice that we, we I'm not going to say we always make it. This is the choice we try to make. We, we can go find him. And we can find him in his hiding spot, wherever that might be. And we can enter into it. And sometimes, like physically, he's like in a corner somewhere behind something with like pillows stacked on him. And I'm like trying to get down next to him and so I can be on his level and like crawl up and so I can look in his eyes and we can make this connection. And it's not always easy to get to where he is because, like I said, he's a really good hider. Um, but that, that's a choice that we can make. And we can enter into his brokenness. And we can enter into his shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that he feels. And we can reassure him, hey, like, I'm not saying that there's not going to be a consequence for the choice that you made. But I want you to know that your mom and I, we, we love you deeply. And we only desire what's best for you. And so we, we may need to learn from this. But you are loved and cared for. And you don't need to hide from us. That's not always easy to do. Uh, The the flesh in me just wants to be angry at him at times. Um, But I think that's what we see the Lord do with those who are his as he pursues, and that's his grace expressed through his pursuit of us, even in the midst of sin. And that's what God is doing here in this passage, making an active choice of pursuit. Okay, David, you have hid long enough. And so God sends Nathan. Pursuing grace sends. It is sent. And it's a brilliant move by Nathan. Because uh, David, if, if you go back and look at the story, Nathan comes up with this amazing story, this kind of parable. And Nathan, or David doesn't necessarily know that it's, that it's not a true story. You know, he thinks it could just be, hey, this happened in a town somewhere. Let me tell you about it. You know, Nathan just giving him like his daily news briefing or something. Uh, so David doesn't necessarily know that this is really about him, a parable about him. And David gets angry at the man in the story who represents David. And David says he deserves to die. And then Nathan drops that bomb on him. You are the man. Four three-letter words. You are the man. Brilliant move by, by Nathan. 
David, convicted by his own words before he even realizes what's going on. So a question is, who does the Lord send in your life? Have you ever been sent to? That's not always a fun feeling when we're trying to hide in the corner from our sin and our shame. But how do we respond when the Lord sends in his grace to us? And how might the Lord send you to someone else? How might God use you to reveal sin? And there's a, there's a couple of things, that, and this will be quick, but there's a couple of things in this passage that I think if, if we're ever in that position where we're the Nathan of this story and God is sending us to, 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 to have an encounter or a conversation with someone else, another believer about their sin, uh, there's, a, there's a few things that I think we can take away from this. One, we need to confront an absolute truth. So we don't need to deal with gossip or hearsay. Nathan knew exactly what had happened. And he wasn't going to David saying, hey, I heard about this. Like, is this true? Uh, you know, let, let me confront your sin, not knowing for sure that it's, that, it's, that it's real, that it's truth. He confronted an absolute truth. He had the right timing. So Nathan listened to the, to the voice of the Lord, to the Holy Spirit, who told him to go. And he went. He had wise wording think how we word our conversations and if we're seeking to uh, to have an encounter with someone or to encourage someone to walk away from their sin patterns that how we word things is very important and I think that it's important that we spend time with the Lord trying to figure out how to best communicate with someone and lastly Nathan went with fearless courage and you can imagine how Nathan felt when the Lord said hey Nathan it's your job to go to the king and tell him that he made a big mistake. You've got to imagine that Nathan on some level was probably feeling some nerves having to go to David, the king, and have that conversation with him. And so sometimes in life we are sent and sometimes the Lord sends others to us. But pursuing grace is always sent. For those of us who are children of God, he pursues us in his grace. Pursuing grace is not only sent, pursuing grace also exposes. We're going to look at verse, verse 7 through verse 9. It says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So Nathan first points out, hey, here's all the blessings against which, David, you committed these things. Hey, here's the context for your sin, David. God anointed you king over Israel. God delivered you out of Saul's hands. God gave you your master's house, all of his belongings. God gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, if this weren't enough for you, David, I would add so much more to you. And you can understand in verse 9, God essentially is, is crying out, Why, David? Why? 
Why have you despised me, David? You've despised the word of the Lord, therefore despising the Lord himself. And David, in his pride, had forgotten what it was like to be weak. And he had forgotten what it was like to be dependent on grace. And the David that that hid in the caves and trusted God for survival seems like a lifetime removed from this David. He's forgotten. God had so often rescued him from violence, yet he acted violently toward Uriah, forgetting the grace upon grace that had been poured out onto his life. And it's exposed here in this passage as Nathan is sent to him and as God exposes the nature of his heart and the nature of the choices that he's made. Nathan's second point, he made clear the true character of David's sin, that he despised the word of the Lord. Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written in direct response to this encounter. It's David's words in response to Nathan essentially calling him out on his sin. In Psalm 51.4, David makes this claim, Against you and you only have I sinned. And that may be hard to, to understand because it doesn't really feel like David only sinned against the Lord, does it? I mean, David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. I mean, his sin affected so many people. But what we see here is that sin, by its very definition, can only be done against the Lord because sin is disobeying the commandments of God. And David has an understanding of that against you and you only have I sinned. The true character of David's sins. David's sins were against the character and nature of God. And yes, they had human consequences, but again, sin by its nature is against God and God alone. Nathan also made it clear that David was guilty of the death of Uriah. That David was guilty of the death of Uriah. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite. You took his wife. You killed him. There's not any room for argument there. Like Nathan doesn't really pull any punches here. He's calling David out for what he did. His actions directly resulted in the death of Uriah. And listen, most of us, given enough time, we can justify a lot of things in our life, can't we? We can come up with reasons why we did things. Nathan didn't give, didn't give David any room to sidestep anything. He said, no, David, you are guilty of murder. You killed Uriah. You killed him. Don't try to blame anyone else here. Don't blame Joab for carrying out your command. You killed him. Left to ourselves, again, we can justify almost anything. But as God's grace exposes us, it exposes the true character of our sin. And oftentimes the true heinous acts that we commit. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 says this, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God exposed the heart of David. And the word of God exposes our hearts as well. 
James 1, 22 through 25 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. God's word exposes us like a mirror. So we see the true nature of ourselves. We see the true nature of our sin as we look into God's word. It exposes like a mirror. How many of you look into a mirror before you leave for for work or school or wherever you go in the morning? Really? No? Okay, good. Um, So uh, I remember one time, um, this was right after one of our babies, I think it was Grayson, right after he was born, um, we had been up probably quite a bit during the night because I love Grayson. I went, I, I'm not trying to, I feel like I'm ragging on Grayson. He's not even here. Um, Grayson was, um, was a, a wonderful baby. Uh, he cried maybe more than average babies might cry. Um, so, you know, a, a good newborn baby, like sleep, maybe looks like this. You get like three to four hours of sleep, and then they wake up to eat. And then hopefully you get another like three hours. And I say a good baby. All babies are, are good. That's digging myself in a hole here. I love babies. Um, <laughs> but Grayson, he was like the, maybe some kind of the opposite. Like he might cry for three hours and then he'd sleep a little bit and then he'd cry for three hours. That's, that's an exaggeration. But I feel like he had us up maybe a little more in the night than some of our other children. And uh, I remember getting up, and I was going to go to work the next morning, and I remember getting ready in the dark because we had been up some in the night, and uh, Grayson was asleep in our room, and I didn't want to wake up Caitlin because she had been up with him too. And I got ready in the dark, and I, for the most part, knew what I was doing, but you know, I never really got to do that last look at myself in the mirror before I go out the door check. Um, so I go to work, and I'm at work. It's probably like early afternoon at this point, and I walk into somebody's office at work, and I look down at my feet. I'm wearing two different pair of shoes. I had no idea. I've been going, no one even told me. Like, hey, you got two different pair of shoes on. I never got to look at myself in the mirror, and you know, I got ready in the dark, and I never did that kind of last check. Let me be sure that I've got the right clothes on, or that my hair's not messed up, or that my shoes match. And so as we look at ourselves in the mirror, oftentimes we see those imperfections. And there are things that we don't see otherwise, because it's really hard to look at yourself. I don't know how many times you tried to look at your own face without like a mirror, like, I can't, I can't do it. We can't see ourselves, right? So we either need someone to to look at us and tell us what they see, or we need God's Word to act as a mirror into our souls. And as we look at our life and we compare it to the truth that we see in God's Word, we start to see the imperfections that exist. And left to ourselves, we never see that. So if you just live life in a silo, you never see those imperfections. God's word exposes. In the same way that Nathan exposed David's sin, God's word and his pursuing grace always seeks to expose us. We can hide our sins from people. We cannot hide them from God. God's word exposes 
penetrates and reveals our true self. And thirdly, pursuing grace disciplines. Pursuing grace disciplines. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 23, says this, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? We may do himself, he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, <clears throat> David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you were here with us, this was actually a part of our Advent uh, reading back before Christmas in early December. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to establish David's house. And at that time, he was establishing David's house as a sense of a, a dynasty. But now in judgment, God promises that the sword will never leave that house, that the sword will never leave David's house in the sense of a family. And this is interesting because God forgave David, Right? We just read it in the passage. God forgave David. There's forgiveness that's occurring here. So David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. So we're talking about, through this passage, the consequences of forgiven sin. The consequences of forgiven sin. And the purpose of this is not to settle any accounts or to demand a penalty for justice to occur. Because from a righteousness and a justice perspective, Jesus is sufficient for David, right? Jesus is sufficient for David. And so we're not talking about David having to just simply pay a price for his sin. Because Jesus was sufficient for that. But we do see how pursuing grace 
disciplines us in our life. So what is God doing here? And there, there's multiple points that you can, you can pull out of this passage. And we see these to be true in our own lives as God disciplines those he loves how God moves in our hearts and in our lives to draw us closer to himself or to cause us to be more like himself through a process of, of sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. So the aim here is, is threefold, I think. One, to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin. Also to show that God does not take sin lightly. Even when he lays aside punishment for sin, it is still not a light act. And there are consequences that we may see and lastly, to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner. God's true heart behind, behind the pursuing grace that disciplines is that we would be humbled and sanctified. That through that discipline process, we would become more like himself. That we would continue to see the overwhelming wealth and majesty of Jesus as it is greater than everything that the world has to offer. Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Further down in that passage, verse 10 through 11 in Hebrews 12 says, But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We must not equate forgiveness with the absence of painful impact when it comes to sin. Our sin can be forgiven while at the same time God allows us to experience painful consequences because of it. Charles Spurgeon once, once wrote, God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins. God has punished them already in the person of Christ, their substitute. But yet, while the Christian cannot be condemned, he can be chastised. Punishment is laid on a man in anger. God strikes him in wrath. But when, the, but when he afflicts his child, chastisement is applied in love. The rod has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. Pursuing grace disciplines and lastly, we'll finish up with this. Pursuing grace restores. Pursuing grace always seeks to restore. We're going to finish up this chapter. Verses 24 through 31 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and he went to Rabbah and he fought against it and he took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the peoples who were in it and he set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. 
It's interesting in some ways as we look at the life of David. Because David's sin was it in some ways greater than the sin of Saul, right? Saul ignored the spoken word of a prophet. David ignored the written word of the Lord. Saul never committed adultery. Saul, though he plotted murder against David, he never actually carried out murder in the sense that David did. Yet it was Saul who lost the kingdom and not David. So what's, what's the difference here? Why was God willing to work with David whereas Saul was kicked out, essentially? And I think that the difference that we can see, if you notice the responses, in 1 Samuel 15, we go back to, uh, go back to Saul. The prophet Samuel confronts Saul. He confronts Saul about his sin, and Samuel's response is not, I have sinned against the Lord. Sam, or, I'm sorry, Saul's response when he is approached by Samuel is evasive and he makes excuses. He's evasive and he makes excuses. When David is confronted, he is broken and he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't look for excuses. He doesn't try to minimize his behavior. He doesn't try to justify it by saying that he had to do what he did because of X, Y, Z. He doesn't try to do any of that. He simply recognizes, yes, Nathan, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. And you see repentance in his heart, and you see repentance in his actions. And as a result of that, verse 13, Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. David's repentance makes all the difference. And again, you see it when you go back and look at the Psalms, David's journal, in a sense. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 17, listen to David's heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, in my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This story begins with David back in chapter 11 at the beginning, neglecting his kingly duties. It was David's duty to lead his men into battle. But when we look back at chapter 11, we remember that he just decided to sit this one out. And this story ends in chapter 12 with Joab calling David back to the battlefront and David ending up back where he belongs, leading his men. David is restored to God's service. And as God's grace pursued David, we see God's grace restoring him to the place that God desires for him to be. He acts like a king again. He's no longer hiding. 
God's pursuing grace always seeks to bring restoration. God's heart is for you, and even in discipline, his heart is for you. There's a quote by A.W. Pink that says, there is a threefold distinction between divine punishment and divine chastisement. First, the character in which God acts. In the former, God acts as a judge, and in the latter, as father. The second distinction lies in the recipients of each. The objects of the former are his enemies, the subjects of the latter are his children. And a third distinction is seen in the design of each. One is retrib- ret- I can't say that word. retributive, and the other is remedial. The one flows from his anger, the other from his love. So God's chastisement, the grace that he pursues us with, is remedial. It's meant to remedy something, to remedy the sin problem that we have in our heart, that we could turn back and be restored to the position that God would have us to be in. God's grace desires to restore. It has a purpose. So God's pursuing grace is Sent, God's pursuing grace exposes us, it disciplines us, and ultimately seeks to restore us. And we'll close with this. Um, I think we've said it the last couple of weeks, but uh, in the um, Jesus Storybook Bible, the, the catchphrase is, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. And this passage concludes with David's son suffering death because of the sin that his father had committed. And that's a hard passage. Like, I don't want to just skip over that. That's hard. And there's there's a part of me that that kind of kicks back against that sum and and says, like, God, that's not fair. That's not fair to that child that he would suffer because of the sins of David. It's a hard passage to know that David's son died as as a part of the remedial discipline carried out in response to his sin. And there's hope in it. In verse 23, we we see that God made provision for the child's salvation. David says, he's not going to come back to me, but one day I will go to him. And so there's hope in the passage. But there's also a beautiful picture in the passage, too, that I think ultimately points to Jesus. Because David, he wasn't saved because God took his son in that moment. That didn't bring salvation to David. He suffered death to pay a price, but it wasn't the price of sin. And ultimately, King David's greater son, Jesus, would one day come and he would suffer death to pay the price of the sins of David, along with all other sinners who look to him in faith. And we're tempted to think that God is severe, in a sense, for requiring the death of David's son through Bathsheba. But we have to remember that it was God's own son who died for our sins. God's own son who was sent as a sacrifice for you and for me. And so we're going to finish up this morning and we're going we're gonna to spend some time uh, just sharing communion together. And we're going to spend some time just being reminded 
that Jesus came, that he was God's son sent to pay the price for our sins, to be that substitutionary atonement that we would not have to die because Jesus died in our place, that he suffered the wrath of God's anger against our sin. And we'll come down the middle aisle and we'll have people serving communion on either side. And as you tear off that bread, you're going to be told this is the body of Christ, broken for you. And as you dip it in the juice, you're going to be told this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And so as we look back at this passage, I want us to to finish this passage this morning being reminded of God's pursuing grace but also being pointed towards a great hope that we have in Jesus. King David's greater son, who did die so that we could have life. Let's pray.